Welcome to Central Speaks, home of our weekly podcast. Central Speaks is produced by Hamilton Central Baptist Church. Today we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. And in uh, Philippians 2, it says, In our relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Paul, of course, writes this while he's in uh, house arrest in Rome. And I sort of feel a bit of an affinity with Paul, having tasted what house arrest might have been like in managed isolation recently. I was confined to a room, only able to go outside under military supervision uh, for set periods of uh, time and surrounded by walls that you wouldn't cross. Or maybe I only get a little wee bit of what it was like for Paul. The church in Philippi, remember, was born through the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit. Paul and Silas with Timothy after their seemingly irreconcilable difference with Barnabas and John Mark, and you can read about that in Acts 15 and 16. And and interestingly, if we get to the end of that story, we find that it was reconciled, and that's a lovely thing in God. But there we see a vision, uh, they see a vision of a man of Macedonia, and long story short, the church in Philippi is born. Uh, This church is the first recorded as being established outside of the Hebrew tradition of being in a synagogue as we understand there was no synagogue in the city. Philippi was a thoroughly Roman city and it was there many who had served in the army went to retire and so was a thriving Roman economic centre with lots of middle class influence. It was about 10 years had passed since the beginning of the church and we read about that and it was in Lydia's home and the church had now matured and thrived and from all accounts it was a complex middle class church would have partnered in the gospel with Paul. Even even though Paul was far away, the church remained in relationship with him and expressed this through sending people and support and money to ensure his welfare and empower his ministry. Paul, in reciprocation in this relationship, continued to communicate with the church. Well, we have this letter included in the canon of the Bible, but I'm sure there would have been likely other written communications back and forth over those 10 years. In this context, Paul writes as part of what I think of as his masterclass, it's written at the end of his ministry, on being a disciple of Jesus. In Philippians 2, 1 to 11, it says this, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. In the text, 
Paul's teaching uh, that a fundamental characteristic that sets the Christian church apart from the rest of the world is our unity. And secondly, he teaches that the only way to achieve the high calling of unity in the church is to understand and apply that same mindset that we have in approaching Christ when we participate in the everyday setting of Christian community life. The key to this, of course, is understanding the mindset of Christ and then being able to apply that mindset in our everyday life together. In the first four verses, Paul lays out his challenge to the church to be, to be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Importantly, in these verses, he's not saying to them that they should, for instance, have the same mindset as him, that is Paul. That is, to all think the same way that he does on issues, or in fact, all think exactly the same way on anything. Diversity of thought, even Christian thought, is inevitable and probably quite healthy in the church. The open dialogue and applying scripture and Christian teaching to issues of the day is important, as the issues of the day come and go over time. The instruction is to be like-minded with Christ. And another way of saying like-minded in this context is perhaps have the same way of thinking among yourselves as you have in your communion with Christ Jesus. Effectively, Paul's saying that the only way to achieve the high calling of unity in the church is to understand and apply the same way of thinking that we have in approaching Christ as we do in the everyday setting of Christian community life. Then in the remaining verses, Paul lays out his model for how to express being like-minded with Christ. He, he goes straight into the answer and he does it so eloquently. His teaching takes the form of a piece of prose, crafted in the form of a, a Roman speech of praise or an encomium. It's a common form at the time. And in this form, the poem puts full focus on the importance of the fundamental Christian idea that explains that the achievement of unity is based on two important and challenging concepts, humility and self-sacrifice. Humility and self-sacrifice. Now at this point the teacher in me stops and marvels at what comes next. The challenge that sits before Paul to explain and have people make sense of these two concepts in a Roman world. Humility and self-sacrifice. Not well known from the Roman world and maybe not well known in our Western 21st century world. The way he does this is powerful and I think fascinating. He chooses to confront the dominant culture of the time with a powerful counter-cultural explanation. He sets up the huh situation with the people. As Paul expressed his speech of praise at the description of Jesus to his audience, and remember it was read out to them for the first time, wouldn't like to be the person doing it, there would have been a sense of jarring as the audience heard it. The poem's quite countercultural for the time because he subverts the speech of praise and he turns it on its head. In the culture of Roman Philippi, those of, of the elite in society, and remember this was a very well-to-do uh, middle to upper class community, they competed with one another to ascend what was known at the time as the cursus honorium, an honours race that marked a person's social climb through a series of possible prestigious public offices. The titles that accumulated along the way were in turn publicly proclaimed in order of importance by means of titles. 
This, this pecking order way of seeing society was very much ingrained in the thinking of the time, with publicly minded locals competing for offices and honours in the confines of their own provincial towns and municipalities. Well, still further down the rungs of the societal ladder, those with no claims in society repeated the pattern by adopting a race of honours in their trade associations and the religious groups that they were involved in. It was just the way that life was. Well, it's a good thing that it doesn't happen in New Zealand, does it? Well, here's an example of the time, an inscription that was found in, in the area of, of Philippi. Publius Marius Valens, son of Publius from the tribe of Voltina, honoured with the decorations of a decurion, aedile, also decurion of Philippi, priest of the divine Antonius Pius, Dumvir, sponsor of games. I'm amazed if you came to someone's door for dinner and that's the way they introduced you. Publius was a Roman citizen from birth. Voltina was the citizen tribe. Um, because he was born into a family that included persons who served as decurions, that was Philippi's town council, he was honoured with the decorations of a decurion, likely while he was still a child. Publius became a decurion himself as an adult and soon won two important civic honours, the office of Aedile, uh, a, a priesthood in the imperial cult. And finally, Publius became Dumvir of Philippi, the highest civic office in the colony. It was in that role, presumably, that he financed the display of public entertainment for the municipality, becoming sponsor of games. This formal stating of honours was the normal form of social introduction at the time, and importantly in Roman culture, the honours were listed in ascending order, each honour building on the one before, raising the person higher and higher in esteem in the eyes of the onlookers, or at least in their own eyes. But Paul, in his presentation of Jesus, does just the opposite. He, ta he takes that cultural standard and he reverses it. Verse 6, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is described by what might be described in the culture of the time as a cursus podorum, a race of ignominies. Instead of each honour building on the next, Jesus is introduced and then with the introduction of each honour, the standing in society is lowered, descending one after the other until finally he's assigned the lowest honour imaginable in the culture of the time, death on a cross. Paul begins his speech of praise affirming that Jesus of Nazareth was fully God. In the context of the whole letter, Jesus is presented as the pre-existent Christ, clothed in the garments of divine majesty and splendor. And it's this imagery that was particularly fitting in a letter intended for a group of Christians in society and status-conscious Philippi. This presentation of Christ Jesus being in very nature God in the Philippi Roman world would have drawn people's thinking to equating this with the rank of position of king or emperor. The centrality of the imperial cult in the social and religious life of the Roman colony at Philippi was well known and it's quite likely that Paul had this in mind when he wrote this, this counter-cultural expression. 
From this position of God in verse 6, as we travel through verses 7 and 8, we're told Jesus made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, taking on the form of a man. He then humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This, this picture of willful lowering of social status and position would have been unthinkable in the Roman worldview. To choose to give away social status, to choose to give away influence, power, prestige, wealth, would have been unheard of. Then secondly, the degree of the fall in status was vast. The description of change was about the most extreme that could be imagined. In the Roman world, there was no position higher than being God, and in many people's eyes, the emperor, and, and there was no position lower than being a slave. The New International Version renders the Greek word as servant, but, but according to a number of scholars, the term may be better presented as slave, and that's what I will do. Paul tells us that Christ took on the form, the, the outward appearance of a slave by becoming a human being. The difference between being God and then choosing to be a slave, well, this was the widest status gap imaginable by Paul's hearers. It can be argued that Paul used the term slave specifically because of the negative status and connotations of slavery in the Roman world. To be a slave was to take on the lowest legal rank in the Roman world. It was, it was a term of extreme abasement. The social stigma of being a slave was not, not just about the restriction of personal liberty, it was the shame associated with slave status. Slavery was and, and unfortunately still is the most shameful and wretched of states, and the many retired Roman soldiers and their families living in Philippi would have been particularly attuned to the social stigma of slavery. The notion of being of equal rank to God and then willingly taking on the form of a slave would have struck residents of Roman Philippi as something only a fool would do. And then just when you think it couldn't get any worse, verse 8 marks the final step in Christ's social descent from equality with God to the publicly degrading experience of crucifixion. In this verse, there are two ideas that would have hit the Roman audience like a hammer. Jesus became obedient to death. Well, you could say in the Roman world of Philippi, a common saying would have been, well, don't tell me what to do. Due to the stigma that slavery cast upon relationships uh, that were based upon the obedience of one party to another, Roman citizens intentionally avoided obedience terminology in their mutual interactions. Where functional hierarchy did exist, these were often talked and written about, in non-obedience language. They, they used metaphors instead, such as father-to-son relationships. Well, apparently, as one story tells it, even the emperor Trajan and his correspondence with lesser officials avoided all mention of obedience. And, and it's within this setting that this description of Jesus being in very nature God, humbling, or a better word maybe, is humiliating himself to the point of death, would have had such power as a countercultural expression. And then the final debasement, the acknowledgement that Jesus suffered death on a Roman cross. This death contains such social significance in the culture of the time. 
It was a status degradation ritual designed to publicly shame the crucified individual and all who would associate with him. No experience was more loathsomely degrading. Crucifixion was explicitly identified as a punishment fit for a slave. And this is how Paul describes the mindset of Christ. A mindset that knowing that he's the Son of God, willingly chooses to lay aside all power, all rights, all influence, social standing, entitlement, self-seeking, what's in it for me, surely this should happen my way. He lays it all aside in the service of others and in the service of us. And that's the masterclass. That, that's the teaching that Paul packaged up in this wonderful countercultural text. The teaching that a fundamental characteristic that sets the Christian church apart for the, for the rest of the world is our unity. And that the only way to achieve the high calling of unity in the church is to understand and apply the mindset of Christ in our relationships with one another. That the application of that occurs when we willingly give way our power, our rights, our influence, our social standing, our entitlement, our self-seeking, our what's in it for me, our surely this should happen my way. And moreover, it's when we choose to do these things in the normal, everyday interactions with others, we, we do it to serve them, and particularly those that have little power and influence. We're left at this point in the text in the depths of the darkness. And then, as Paul does, we read on, we get the balance in the prose, the light that finally comes at the end of the long winter night, as it were. Verse 9, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul shifts the subject from Christ to God, again connecting with the culture of the time. He, he draws upon a cultural script that informed the way in which one well-to-do citizen could effectively honour another in the Roman world. Among Roman elites, to be honoured by another aristocrat increased one's own status in proportion to that aristocrat's prestige. The ideal, of course, in every case was to be praised by a praised man. This, this practice is evidenced in inscriptions that have been found from Philippi where individuals specifically cite the emperor as the one who bestowed an honorific title or office upon them. There was a reason for this. In the Roman world, status was a public commodity. A grant of honor had to be publicly recognized to count for anything. In, in Philippi society, everything depended in this regard upon the rank of the person bestowing the honor. In the context of this social system, the utterly unexpected status reversal of Jesus comes at the hands of the most exalted being in the universe. 
And this would not have been lost on the Philippians. The status of God guarantees the efficacy of the honor that has been granted to his crucified son. Given the indisputable rank of the bestower, Paul leaves his Philippian audience with little doubt that God's grant of honor is such that all creatures that have thought will publicly acknowledge the glorious name of Jesus of Nazareth. What what Jesus receives is not a new name, but rather a new reputation. It's the public acclamation of Jesus as Lord and the effective exercise of his universal dominion that represents the heart of the exaltation of Christ as portrayed by Paul in the text. Every knee shall bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. Angels and demons in heaven, persons alive on earth, the dead, along with the demons in the underworld, every tongue will confess or acknowledge publicly that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This statement acts for Christians as the trumpet call of the end of the age, signaling for us the purpose and direction of life as we know it. It's our eschatological proclamation. But one last thought about the Philippians in the context of the Roman Philippi world. Uh, This statement again would have been countercultural and dangerous. Roman Philippi was a center for the emperor cult through which homage was paid to the imperial family. The, The confession of Jesus Christ as Lord would stand as a direct challenge to the affirmation that Gaius or Nero was Caesar. Under Nero, the acclamation of Caesar as Lord became widespread and and the association of Lord terminology with the ruler of the Roman world would have played a key part in the Philippians' political and social reality. In this setting, to proclaim Jesus as Lord really put your faith on the line, or potentially on the cross. So as we think about these things, in our relationship with one another, therefore, Let us have the same mindset as Christ. That does not mean that we all have to think the same things. It's okay to have a different opinion on what coffee cups we should have in the cafe, or what color the lino should be, or even the way we do church. But as we dialogue together, let us have the same mindset as Christ, who being in very nature God, made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant. As as we journey together as Christians, let us strive to be unified by by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind, doing, doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but rather in humility value others above ourselves, not looking to our own interests, but each of us to the interests of others. for joining us this week online come join us on sunday mornings too if you're in hamilton find out more about hamilton central baptist church and discover ways to get involved at www.hcbc.nz join us again next week at central speaks